to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. Uh, thanks very much for coming to today's lecture, which is the last of the term, sadly, but um, of course we have an interesting program for the spring already lined up, so I hope to see you um, again there as well. Um, to, tonight's lecture is part of the Forum's European Provocations series. So if you have had a uh, look at our program, you might have noticed that we have different kind of series um, in the program. And the European Provocations um, we ask a scholar who is, who is an influential thinker, scholar in his own right, to introduce a text to us that is of special significance to them, either because perhaps it influenced their thinking in a particular way, or because it's still very relevant to um, issues today, um, or you know any number of combinations of reasons that you can think of why a text might be, might be influential. So I hope that you all have a handout where there's basically some quotes uh, that we will be discussing tonight. And um, our speaker tonight is Professor Chris Bertram, who is a professor of social and political philosophy at the Department of Philosophy in Bristol. Uh, he has been at Bristol in, since 1988, but before that he's also been at the University of Essex, at the LSE here, uh, and in Oxford. And he teaches mainly political philosophy, um, also occasionally social science, also lectures on Descartes, and his research interests are in modern social contract theory, theories of justice, and public justification. Um, now, he's picked Rousseau as, or a text by Rousseau as the text for tonight, um, and he's published a book, in fact, on Rousseau and social contract in 2003, uh, and he also, until recently, was the president of the Rousseau Association, so you can imagine that Rousseau is probably a very influential thinker for, um, for Chris, and so I'm very much looking forward uh, to his lecture tonight, in which he will, I think, try to explain to us why um, some, of what, some of the things that Rousseau said are still very much relevant today when you think about um, recent wars and humanitarian interventions and whether or not these can be justified. Um, and so, how? And so, without much further ado, I'll just hand over to Chris and look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank you for coming tonight. Um, so my topic's going to be uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's um, article, paper, fragment on principles of the right of war. Um, but before I get on to that, um, a little bit of background perhaps. So this is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, um, born in Geneva in 1712. And some of you may know that means it's uh, his tercentenary and there have been all kinds of celebrations, uh, festivals, conferences, and the like, all over the world um, to celebrate this. Now, there aren't many people who, after 300 years, generate the kind of excitement, but also feelings of, I say, um, hatred, contempt, and love and affection that Rousseau does. And I think that's a surprising fact. I mean, people can be... Um, can, you can like or dislike some philosopher of the past um, to some extent, but it's rare that somebody um, really generates the, the depth of either positive or negative feeling that Rousseau manages to. Uh, and I think there's some important reasons for that, the most important reason 
being that Rousseau is, I think, um, one of our most perceptive critics of modernity and of modern civilization generally. Part of the reason why he was able to be a perceptive critic of modernity um, had to do with the fact that he was actually a pretty difficult character um, and a pretty crazy character for parts of his life. And I think his own paranoia led to some of his more profound insights into modern civilization. I think we'll see some of that coming out in this paper I'll be talking about today. But let me just say a little bit by way of general biographical information just to situate Rousseau. People probably know him from uh, a variety of different writings, probably mostly um, nowadays from the Social Contract, which he published in 1762, um, or the Discourse on Inequality, which came out in 1755. But actually he's um, a remarkable contributor to a whole range of fields of human inquiry. He's also, um, some of you may be relieved to hear, quite a late starter in life. So he's born in, born in 1712 um, in Calvinist Geneva, which was uh, an independent city-state founded by Calvin himself. Um, so it has a, an, an established Calvinist religion. Born um, as a citizen, or as a son of a citizen of that state, which was a very... So most of the population of Geneva were not citizens. This was a very kind of niche elite group who actually um, managed to form part of the citizen body. Now, Geneva was convulsed for much of the 18th century by... Um, conflict between the democratic and aristocratic factions. And you have to see Rousseau's work on democracy and sovereignty a little bit in that context. But actually this was a fight between um, and among uh, elites essentially, between a very narrow elite, the aristocracy, and a slightly wider elite, the citizenry. Most of the population of Geneva were uh, immigrants who didn't have the right to participate the right to vote. Well, when um, Rousseau was 10, his father got involved in a duel um, and was run out of town. So he was brought up uh, outside of town by a religious family, and then he was apprenticed to a rather cruel engraver, but at least he had a trade. And then he, um, at the age of 17, because they locked the gates of the city and he knew not got back in, that he faced a whipping in the morning, he decided to run off and seek his fortune in the wider world. Um, and quickly fell into the hands of a Catholic convert noblewoman who um, both um, sexually initiated him and initiated him into the Catholic Church. And that's a big deal, because it's rather a change of, change of religion. Yeah, yeah. Well, the change of religion, which meant, which had the implication that he would lose his Genevan citizenship. Um, and then he began a rather peripatetic existence, um, ending up eventually in Paris and ending up in the various salons that were run by uh, leading Enlightenment figures. And he came to know people like Diderot at that time. 
Now, in 1749, I think, but I might have got that date wrong, um, he was off to see his friend Diderot, who was imprisoned at the time, in the chateau of Vincennes. Uh, and as he was walking along through the forest, he was leafing through a newspaper called the Mercure de France. And in um, that newspaper, there was an essay competition announced. So he's already middle-aged by this stage, remember. An essay competition that asked whether the arts and sciences had contributed to or detracted from the moral progress of humanity. And he had, he claims, a moment of epiphany. Uh, he kind of swooned in the forest and all these kind of stars revolved around his head. And he says that at that moment, he came to the idea that um, formed the foundation of his philosophical and political system. And that idea was that man is good by nature, but is corrupted by society. Now, that's a slightly slippery slogan, actually. But he put this into an essay, which became his discourse on the sciences and the arts, and he won the essay competition, and he became suddenly, in early middle age, this figure of celebrity that everyone wanted to know and everyone wanted to reply to. Um, he then went on, he contributed to a number of fields, he wrote a fantastic kind of semi-erotic novel, um, he composed an opera, which was a smash hit of 1753, um, contributed to a number of fields, botany, for example, um, he was a great contributor to, until in 1762 he publishes uh, Emile, his treatise on education, and the social contract. And because of the heterodox religious content of those works, he gets into big trouble. The uh, works are burnt in Paris and Geneva. He has to flee, and eventually he takes sanctuary in England um, at the, the invitation of David Hume, where he um, goes pretty crazy and paranoid, it has to be said. There's some interesting works about that. Um, and that's basically it, although he um, contributes... Um, he's still a famous European figure. People are asking him to um, <coughs> contribute opinions on all matter of things, and he writes a project of... Um, a, a project of constitution for the island of Corsica, which has newly become independent. Um, he works on a, a possible political system for Poland, and he also engages in music copying and continues his interest in the opera before dying in 1778. But in that time, in this latter period of his life, um, he managed some pretty amazing achievements, particularly works like The Social Contract and Emile. And of course they were massively influential later in the century when you had uh, something like the French Revolution come along. Um, the French Revolution, um, the leading figures of the French Revolution read Rousseau, they were heavily influenced by his ideas, like the idea of the general will. One can quibble, and I would quibble, with a lot of the interpretation they made of Rousseau, but he had this tremendous impact 
on political life, but not just on political life, also on musical life, on cultural and aesthetic life. Um, he changed the idea, that, changed the way in which um, people thought of themselves as relating to nature. He changed our ideas of childhood. He had this tremendous across-the-board impact. So I thought I'd better put some of that context out there before going on to discuss this specific text I'll be looking at today. Um, and I think for most of you, um, it's going to be a pretty unfamiliar text, this Principles of the Right of War. Um, it, um, but I think it deserves a place alongside Rousseau's most important writings, such as The Social Contract and The Discourse on Inequality. And in fact, in many ways, it plays a vital role in linking those two works together. Um, it links, uh, it, it shows the connections between Rousseau's conception of history and his political philosophy, and how his philosophical anthropology, that's to say, um, his understanding, his theory of human nature, informs his view of the modern state. Now, since it's an unpublished fragment, never published in his lifetime, we can't be completely certain of how it was intended, but we can divine a little bit from various scraps um, of evidence. Okay, so Rousseau tells us at the beginning of his work on political institutions, the social contract, that the social contract is just a fragment. It's um, a small part of a much bigger project he was working on um, on political institutions. Um, we know this from um, correspondence, we know this from his autobiographical writings such as the Confessions. The final one paragraph chapter of the social contract also tells us that the account he gives, gives there needs to be supplemented by a theory of the external relations of states, including such questions as the right of war. Um, to this evidence, we can add various other things. There was um, a letter from, his, uh, from Rousseau to his publisher, um, a chap called Marc Marcel Ray in Amsterdam. He had to publish in Amsterdam in those days because it was where the, the free press was. Uh, and Rousseau informs Ray then that he envisages the publication of a section of the larger work under the title Principles of the Right of War as a freestanding work. And it's probable the text we have today that I'll be talking about um, is probably most of a developed working draft of this. Okay, but why is it... Um, why is it such an obscure text? Why don't many people know about it? Um, well, many people don't know about it because um, it was in a jumbled mess for most of its history. Um, in 1914, a famous research scholar called C. E. Vaughan um, tried to improve on um, some jumbled up um, pieces of manuscript um, that a chap called Dreyfus Brissac had inherited from... Um, an inheritor of Rousseau. Um, but it just didn't make sense. There's this jumble of incoherent pages. And then in the mid-1980s, uh, an American scholar called Grace, Grace Roosevelt came along 
and looked at the pages again. Um, and she really did this heroic task of um, literary, re literary and manuscript reconstruction. She noticed um, a couple of important things about the, this manuscript. One important thing was the, um, the, the, its literary quality. So, several pages in, there was this amazing kind of ringing declaration. And Rousseau's always known of as a great writer, and, and a writer who always tried to start his works with these ringing declarations. So, the social contract starts, man was born free, but everywhere is in chains, for example. This one came three pages in, and she thought, this is weird. Surely this should be at the beginning. And then she noticed that a lot of the pages had written on the, the, the bottom of one leaf some words, which were then followed on and copied at the top of the next. Well, that's a pretty obvious clue that these pages are linked. But for some reason, former editors hadn't noticed this connection. And she managed to, managed to put the pages in something like the right order. And then a couple of other people, um, a French chap called Bruno Bernardi and um, an Italian scholar called Gabriella Silvestrini, um, a couple of years ago, they published a new and improved version with some new pages that have been found that made even more sense. And then this year, um, Quintin Hoare, um, translated uh, this new version into English uh, in a uh, collection of Rousseau's later political writings edited by me. So we got on to the uh, advertising stage of the talk. All good bookshops, I'm sure. Okay, so, so it's a text that has been only recently um, <coughs> only recently put together in anything like a coherent form, uh, really from the 1980s, and we've got a much better text now, just in the last couple of years. And what a text it is. Um, Rousseau starts the text by damning the tradition of political philosophy, and in particularly, particularly the natural law tradition. Um, and this is the ringing, kind of ringing declaration that... Grace Roosevelt uh, cottoned on to. This is what he says. It's on your handout. Um, he says, I open books on right and ethics. I listen to scholars and jurist consults, those are natural law theorists, and convinced by their ingratiating arguments, I deplore the miseries of nature. I admire the peace and justice established by the civil order, I bless the wisdom of public institutions and console myself for being a man by seeing myself as a citizen. Well instructed upon my duties and good fortune, I close the book, leave the classroom and look around me. Well, what he finds is a pretty stark contrast between the view of the world, the ideological view of the world, promulgated 
by the political philosophers and theorists of his day and the human reality around him. What, what he sees instead is the kind of tyranny and oppression that actually he's already described in an earlier work, The Discourse on Inequality. Uh, in that work, he explains the origin of a modern state as coming from a moment when um, everyone is exhausted by a, a Hobbesian kind of state of war that's developed over history. It's not original to mankind in Rousseau's vision, but it's developed over history. And exhausted by this, the poor have been conned by the rich into accepting a new kind of constitutional regime. Freedom under the law. But freedom under the law means um, that, to, to, to use the, the famous Anatole France uh, analogy, rich and poor alike are free to sleep under bridges. What does he see? He says, second quote on the handout, I see wretched peoples groaning beneath an iron yoke, the human race crushed by a handful of oppressors, a host overwhelmed by misery and starved for bread, whose blood and tears the rich man quaffs in peace. And everywhere the strong armed against the weak with the formidable power of the laws. So I think he was thinking of George Osborne at that point. <laughs> but as appalling as the um, domestic scene of oppression is, there's worse to come. Because he lifts his eyes further. He gazes into the distance um, and he looks beyond the merely domestic scene to the international order. And this is what he sees. I raise my eyes to gaze afar. I see fire and flame, deserted fields, towns being pillaged, cruel men. Whither are you dragging those wretches? I hear a frightful din, such commotion and such screams. I approach and perceive a scene of murder. Ten thousand men butchered, the dead stacked in heaps, the dying trampled underfoot by horses, bearing the image of death and its last agony. So that is the fruit of those pacific institutions. That's to say, the institutions that have brought peace, supposedly. O oh, barbarous philosopher, come read us your book on a battlefield. So, I just put now the famous um, scene from Goya of um, conflict in Spain, uh, poor people being um, massacred by troops. Um, peace at home, peace domestically, is for Rousseau the peace experienced by Odysseus and his companions in the Cyclops cave. But the Pacific institutions, the institutions that are supposed to bring peace to humankind, that's to say sovereign states, give rise to something far worse when they come into conflict with one another. And Rousseau's purpose in this text is to explore the relationship between these two spheres. This domestic sphere where we've created 
a constitutional order to ward off the supposed Hobbesian war of all against all and the international sphere where we're still in a state of nature. Now, Rousseau wonders, of course, why it's not um, enough simply to depict some of these terrible horrors, um, these horrors of domestic tyranny and international violence. Surely, he says, it's going to be obvious to anyone with a conscience, anyone who can see that the state, um, as constituted, is just an appalling institution. But alas, he says, the people who get listened to are philosophers and the like, um, in whom the natural voice of pity, and this is one of the key um, aspects of Rousseau's philosophical anthropology, he thinks that human beings naturally have a, a tendency to compassion, they uh, are repulsed by the suffering of their fellow creatures and will do something about it if they can do so at little cost. Um, but in a modern competitive society, intellectuals, particularly philosophers, apparently, um, uh, their natural voice of pity and compassion is stilled by the interest they have in flattering princes and governments. The people, by contrast, um, don't have the means to grant tenure, to endow chairs, and to provide intellectuals with the nice things in life. Thus, reason is put in the service of power, Rousseau claims. Okay, so given that merely displaying these horrors isn't going to convince, he thinks he better come up with some argument, some diagnosis. And his diagnosis of our condition is that we're permanently caught in a contradictory state between the civil state with its laws and its constitutions on the one hand, and on the other hand, the state of nature. Well, how so? Well, anticipating the argument of the social contract, his later book, Rousseau tells us that ideally, state is a union of force and law. It's the force of all the citizens directed by uh, an impartial principle that comes from all of us and applies to all of us. If the state were a little universe all on its own, a self-contained society, then perhaps everything would be okay. But such isn't the case. Rather, the state of nature continues to exist among states. Now, this is how Hobbes, the 17th century political philosopher, author of Leviathan, put this point in chapter 13 of that book. He says, yet, this is Hobbes rather than Rousseau now, yet in all times, kings and persons of sovereign authority, because of their independency, are in continual jealousies, and in the state and posture of gladiators having their weapons pointing and their eyes fixed on one another. That is, their forts, garrisons, guns upon the frontiers of their kingdoms and continual spies upon their neighbours, which is a posture of war. Now Hobbes's view that was, this was not good, 
but this was less problematic than the state of nature among individuals, which the state, the sovereign state, has put in place to cure the problems of. Sovereign authorities uphold thereby, says Hobbes, the industry of their subjects, and there does not follow from it the fact that individual states are in a state of nature with one another, that misery which accompanies the liberty of particular men. But Rousseau thinks more or less the exact opposite. Rather, competition among states threatens liberty from within. So I'm not doing a very good job of clicking through this. Okay. This is what Rousseau says. In Prince's ideas about absolute independence, force alone, addressing the citizens in the name of law and foreigners in the name of raison d'etat, renders the latter unable and the former unwilling to resist, so that the vain name of justice serves everywhere only as a shield for violence. And, what's com- as, and as for what's commonly called the right of nations... It's certain that for want of sanction, its laws are merely chimeras, merely illusory, that means, weaker even than the law of nature. The latter, and he's thinking about pity and compassion here, at least speaks in individual hearts, whereas since the law of nations has no guarantee, apart from its usefulness to the person who submits to it, its, decision, its decisions are respected only insofar as as interest confirms them. So the picture we have here then is of nations armed against one another, paranoid and jealous, and of domestic populations silenced and cowed in the name of the external threat. This is worse than the state of nature, worse than domestic anarchy, thinks Rousseau, because the passions that tend to limit conflict in that state of nature, viz our natural pity and compassion for our fellow human beings are absent from the motivation of states. When primitive individuals, thinks Rousseau, encounter one another in in a natural anarchy, in a state of nature, they're naturally fearful. And besides, have this inclination of pity to recoil from one another's suffering. But the artificial creatures that we make in order to escape from the state of nature, have no natural fears and no inclination to pity. They only have interests with nothing to mitigate those interests. Now, Thomas Hobbes, the 17th century philosopher who I just mentioned, he had a deep influence over Rousseau. It's often striking. So, so though Rousseau, in the social contract, makes the whole people into the sovereign and purports thereby to limit the despotism of the state, from the point of view of the individual in a Rousseauian state, we still have the alienation of all the rights that people hold in the state of nature in favour of the sovereign. It's just that for Rousseau, it's this democratic sovereign that um, has total rights 
over all of us. Uh, indeed, we have the same picture in both Hobbes and Rousseau, that there really are no natural, no human rights, as it were, at all. Only the sovereign, through positive law, grants people rights, including rights over property. And the sovereign's influence is absolute. But in this text, Rousseau is more the anti-Hobbes. Hobbes' error is twofold. First, and this reprises an argument that Rousseau had put forward in the Discourse on Inequality, Hobbes mistakes the nature of social man for his real human nature. And second, on the basis of that mischaracterization, he then advocates a political solution that leaves individuals at the mercy of princes who remain at war with one another. And crucially, this leads Hobbes to misunderstand what war essentially is and to think of the origin of war as lying in the nature, the natural inclinations of human beings and in competition and natural enmity among individuals. But but Rousseau argues that far from being a real justification for the creation of the state, on the contrary, the very idea of war depends almost conceptually either on the state or at least on some settled form of human organisation. Of course, he concedes there's a great deal of conflict in human life. People are fighting over stuff all the time. Um, They fight one another, sometimes they kill one another, there are jealousies, hatreds and the like. But war is something different, he thinks. War implies not episodic conflict for contingent reasons, but a demonstrated and sustained will to mutual destruction. Such a settled will, that's the essence of the thing. And even when there are no actual hostilities, that can characterise something that Rousseau calls the state of war. And this is a state in which, and I quote, the two enemies tie their hands without losing or disguising the will to harm one another. Preparations are made. Arms and siege materials are amassed. All military operations, other than the ones specified by agreement, continue. This shows clearly enough that the intentions remain unchanged. It's hard to read those words and some of the others surrounding it without thinking of the Cold War. Here's a a picture of the Glienicke Bridge in Berlin, the place where... Um, spies and dissidents were exchanged at the height of the Cold War. This state of affairs where both sides are armed to the teeth for 40 plus years, amassing great arsenals of um, arsenals for mutual, mutually assured nuclear destruction, um, make, make extensive preparations and plans for combat conducted war via proxies, spied on one another, that kind of thing. That's the kind of um, state of affairs that Rousseau has in mind when he talks about the state of war. Now, Rousseau doesn't entirely rule out, that's why I said it wasn't entirely, it was almost a conceptual claim, but not quite. 
But it doesn't entirely rule out the possibility that individuals might hate one another, hate one another enough to be in such a condition of you know, planning over decades um, their revenge on one another. But he, it's clear he thinks it's basically foreign to the nature of individuals to structure their entire uh, existence around a project of destroying another person. War, he says, is a permanent state presupposing constant relations, and such relations very rarely obtain between one man and another, where among individuals everything is in a continual flux which ceaselessly changes relations and interests, but not so with the state. With the state, we now enter a new order of things. We're going to see men united by an artificial concord assemble to cut each other's throats. And all the horrors of war arise from the, from the efforts they had made to avert it. In other words, they put in place these states to prevent conflict ostensibly, but the states themselves are the source of the most horrible conflict. Now this birth of the state is an epochal moment in Rousseau's view of human history. And it's akin to various other uh, similar transitions he notes in his works. For example, in the Discourse on, on Inequality, Social Cooperation, uh, The Kiss, The Crime of Passion, um, Smelting of Metals, Agriculture, and the first fencing off of a plot of land are great moments of uh, change in human nature like this. Now elsewhere in his work, Rousseau's willing to say some positive things about the state. Um, and he's willing to credit civil society with the inception of things like morality, justice, and sometimes um, even, surprisingly, rationality and language. But not here, not in this text. The state is a novel form of organisation that compels the rest of humanity to imitate it or die. Once reminded of Marx and Engels in the manifesto on the onward march of capitalism, um, as the bourgeoisie, quote, compels all nations on pain of extinction to adopt the bourgeois mode of production, it compels them to in introduce what it calls civilization into their midst, i.e., to become bourgeois themselves. In one word, it creates a world after its own image. Here's how Rousseau puts the point in relation to the state. He says, The first society formed necessarily leads to the formation of all the rest. People have to belong to it, or to unite to resist it. People have to imitate it, or let themselves be swallowed up by it. Thus the entire face of the earth is changed. Everywhere nature has disappeared. Everywhere, human contrivance has taken its place. Natural independence and liberty have given way to laws and to slavery. There no longer exists any free being. The philosopher seeks a man and no longer finds one. So once people have banded together in the state, the job has to be completed. Um, the state proliferates over the earth. It outcompetes all other forms of 
human association. Now, this new entity might be composed of human beings, but Rousseau both recalls and rejects a, a famous image, and there's a really interesting backwards and forwards between Hobbes and Rousseau here. He adopts um, Rousseau, he, he, adopt, he adopts, or at least refers to, Hobbes' striking image of the state as a man composed of men. So Hobbes had written in, in, the, in the introduction to Leviathan in 1651, um, by art is created that great Leviathan called the Commonwealth or State, in Latin civitas, which is but an artificial man, though of greater, stress, though of greater stature and strength than the natural, for whose protection and defence it was intended, and in which the sovereignty is an artificial soul, as giving life and motion to the whole body. In one of the most famous and one of the most brilliant pieces of graphic design ever, in the frontispiece of the first edition of Leviathan, and reproduced in just about every edition since, you've got that, this fantastic image of the, the sovereign who is lording it over um, the land, and the sovereign's body, you can't really see it here, is composed of tiny little people. The strength of the sovereign comes, according to Hobbes, from the association of these individuals. The state is an artificial man composed of, um, of little men, as it were. But Rousseau's not really buying this Hobbesian picture entirely. Individual human beings, he argues, are by nature actually very limited creatures with limited needs and no necessary relation to their fellow human beings. He's out of step with modern anthropology uh, in that respect, it has to be said. They're around for a finite time and their capacity for enjoyment is satiable. They only have one stomach and so on. States are quite different. States are immortal, immortal and insatiable. They compare themselves constantly to their rivals and they're always seeking to assure the means of their future ends, to anticipating uh, future threats and so on. So when Hobbes writes, I put for a general inclination of all mankind a perpetual and restless desire of power after power. So Hobbes is claiming that, that, that human beings, individual human beings, are insatiable and they also try to get as much power as they possibly can in order to make sure that when the next lot of desires and needs come along, they've got the means in place to secure those things. <coughs> Rousseau says that's wrong for individuals, but it's right for states. The state, being an artificial body, has no determinate measure. The size pertaining to it is undefined. It can always increase this. It feels weak so long as any are stronger than it. Its security and self-preservation require it to make itself more powerful than all its neighbours. It can increase, sustain and exert its forces only at their expense. And if it does not need to seek its subsistence outside itself, 
It constantly seeks new members there who may give it a more unshakable stability. Now, people who know their Rousseau will note at this point what I think is a rather striking divergence from the argument of the Discourse on Inequality. So in the Discourse on Inequality, natural man did indeed have the independent qualities that Rousseau attributes to him in the principles of the right of war. So human beings are are solitary, easily satisfied, small needs and so on, and not naturally driven to fight with one another. But in that text, with the development of interdependence, we find that this primitive and easily satisfied desire to care for our natural needs gets overlaid and partially superseded by another more social and comparative mode of concern for self, which Rousseau calls amour propre. And Pitier, this natural disposition to seek to relieve another's suffering, gets somewhat suppressed, although it never entirely disappears, except maybe among philosophers. The emergence in that story of amour propre all takes place in the discourse before and independently of the creation of the state. Here, the psychological characteristics that Rousseau takes to be here in this text, the psychological characteristics that Rousseau takes to be the mark of social man in the discourse are pronounced as alien to man, which indeed they originally are, but as strikingly asserted as being the essence of the state. It's the state, not people. The state constantly compares. It's paranoid. And it gets its sense of itself, from a sense of its own identity, from this comparison with other states. And this suggests, although Rousseau isn't explicit about it here, a different kind of narrative according to which the state, the civil order, is essentially implicated in the toxic individual psychology that he thinks is typical of modernity. The artificiality of the state, the fact that its strength is merely relative rather than absolute, and is merely derived from its members who have a natural and independent existence from it, accounts both for its distinctive passions and its weaknesses. It's a mode of organisation of human beings, united and directed by their general will, or, as we might say, it's a system of legal authority over a territory. It follows for Rousseau that the conflict between states has a qualitatively different character from the conflict among human beings. With people, it's unlikely, as I've said, that according to Rousseau, they can ever achieve that kind of settled will to mutual destruction that's necessary for war. But states, by contrast, because of their bureaucratic and immortal nature, tend naturally to this settled attitude of hostility to one another, and hence to the conscription of their citizens into this project. Naturally, this can have pretty bad consequences for human beings. But the conscription and harming of human beings is only an incidental means to the project of Uh, destroying an artificial entity that depends on them. What would achieve that goal is the destruction of what Rousseau calls the social pact, the bond among members of a state that's expressed by their general will. 
Now, this has an odd consequence. Since it's the principle of the unity of the state, the general will, that must be destroyed, if the state is to be destroyed, and since war takes place only between corporate beings, or artificial beings, there's no hostility towards men as such, and it can be waged, war can be waged, without taking anyone's life. A state can be considered from two perspectives, that of the aggregate of individual inhabitants and that of the corporate person. As he puts it, all such objects must be considered in a twofold light, to wit, the land both as public territory and the patrimony of individuals, goods as belonging in one sense to the sovereign and in another to the owners, inhabitants as citizens and as men, Since the body politic is basically only a corporate person, it's only a fictive being. Take away public convention, this being is instantly destroyed, without the least change for the worse in whatever makes it up. And never could all the conventions of man change anything in the physical nature of things. So then, for Rousseau, though war is typically a bloody affair... It's not essential to the nature of war between states that it be so. Because of this distinction between the physical nature of persons and the artificial nature of states, it's entirely possible for one state to destroy another one simply by destroying the conventions that constitute it. In fact, we can see that Rousseau is clearly right about this. There are various historical cases where one state is simply incorporated into another such as Hitler's Anschluss with Austria, for example, that exemplify this kind of case. Um, Indeed, rather oddly, but entirely consistently with what he has to say elsewhere, Rousseau suggests that one of the most effective means by which one state can wage war on another is by a kind of cultural aggression. Although peace treaties may have the aim of imposing a price on the defeated by way of treasure, land, or slaves, Rousseau thinks that too punitive a peace is liable to backfire by allowing the victors too luxurious a life, thus becoming soft and effete. A wiser strategy, he thinks, is to enjoy a softness of manners in the defeated, as he claims Cyrus did with the, Lyd- with the Lydians. It's a reference to Herodotus. Now, as far as I know, there's no real modern instances of this, unless we want to count the United States and the post-war Marshall Plan. The point here, though, is that for Rousseau, the international state of nature usually just is a state of war, that's to say, a state of continuously willed mutual destruction, even in the absence of fighting, and so-called peace is merely an instrument of a state seeking relative advantage over other states, i.e. peace or a peace can itself can itself be a means of making war. Now, unfortunately, Rousseau's manuscript breaks off just after he's moved from an analysis of the nature of the state to consider what might make war legitimate. And there are no real indications um, in the text itself, where the argument might go from there. Um, but a pa- perhaps a number of comments are in order. We've seen that in order to compete effectively with one another for Rousseau, states need to mobilise their entire populations 
or at least the entire citizen population. And each of its members need to have passions that are inflamed against the rival states. The internal freedom of such states is always at risk of being compromised in order to meet the external threat. Rousseau wouldn't have been surprised either by the total war of the 20th century or by the rhetoric of the war on terror. But although the manuscript's unfinished, it's clear he would have disapproved of the suggestion that everyone in the state is, as it were, fair game in war. The arguments of the principles of the right of war surface briefly in Book 1, Chapter 4 of The Social Contract, where Rousseau is responding to Grotius, another um, early modern theorist, Grotius's attempt to justify sovereign authority on the basis of a contract between conquerors and those they defeat, whereby the vanquished agree to accept authority in return for their lives. Rousseau responds, distilling the material from his unpublished text into a few paragraphs. One person's authority over another, he claims, couldn't arise in this manner in the state of nature. Since war, as we've seen, presupposes the prior existence of states, in any case, he tells us, war between states always makes this sharp distinction between the public character of the contending parties and the private individuals who happen to be citizens of subjects of that state. It's very clear that the private individuals should be respected in their persons and property as far as possible. So where states go beyond this and aspire to subject the citizens of neighbouring states to their rule by force, all we really have is an extension of the so-called right of the stronger, in other words, no right at all, in which case authority only persists as long as states have effective power and slaves have the right to escape or disobey when they can. So I'll just finish with one final quote, which comes right at the end of um, Principles of the Right of War. And when I read it, um, it made me think very much of uh, the Middle East, particularly of um, Gaza, Israel, Palestine, and so on. Aristotle says, says Rousseau, that in order to authorise the cruel treatment meted out to the Helots in Sparta, the ephors on taking office would solemnly declare war upon them. I think Israeli prime ministers wait until just before they've taken office, in fact, just before the election. This declaration was as superfluous as it was barbaric. A state of war necessarily existed between them for no other reason than that they were respectively the masters and the slaves. Since the Lacedaemonians, that's the Spartans, used to kill helots, the helots undoubtedly had every right to kill Lacedaemonians. So any attempt to, um, to enslave or subdue necessarily gives, right to, gives rise to a right of resistance, thinks Rousseau. And a subjected people never loses its right of self-determination, its right to reinstate its social pact, even if this has been taken away, and govern through a renewed general will. Thank you.
book. Um, so given the fact that you know, there were things that matter was good by nature in the society towards him, mm -hmm. um, does he think that you throughout history <coughs> it actually got worse because civilization evolved and everything was getting worse? And didn't he see that, that it was better in his time than 200 years before that or than 2,000 years before that? And, and secondly, how did he think that could be turned around? Because from everything uh, which, which was in this text, it seems that the only solution he sees is going back to nature, mm -hmm. and he wasn't thinking about a revolution or so, going yeah. to something more democratic. Okay, good, good. So, um, so yes, Rousseau sees um, the process of history as a, a process of um, corruption, as it were. So um, he thinks that our, our, our human nature, our original human nature, or he imagines that our original human nature, is as solitary creatures who care about our limited needs and have this natural compassion for one another. But then in the process of development, we start to become dependent on one another. And we become dependent on one another both materially and psychologically. And as we become dependent on one another materially and psychologically, we start to develop this new psychology. And according to this new psychology, um, which also gives us a greater sense of self-consciousness, we start to uh, value ourselves only as we appear in the eyes and opinions of other people. So we start to derive our sense of ourselves from the opinions of other people. Now, this usually, he thinks, leads to complete disaster because what you care about is the approval of somebody else and what they care about is perhaps your approval. So everyone has a massive incentives to fake it the whole time. Um, and when people are cooperating in the economy, in politics or whatever, they have even more incentive to fake it. So everybody is just kind of lying to one another about what they truly feel all the time. So this is a kind of moral disaster, essentially. But it also gives rise to um, a, the possibility of um, a heightened uh, sense of self-awareness, greater rationality. It's just those things usually get put to bad and nefarious purposes. But he does think there are a couple of ways out. Um, he thinks that one way out is to have a properly constituted republic where we all enjoy a certain equality of status as citizens and we, and we, we recognise one another as having that free and equal status. And then we can be sufficiently secure in our sense of self um, by, by the fact that we have that legal and political equality. So that's one kind of political route, a just state, a small just state, and the other way out is through a genuinely loving relationship. Um, so um, he, he, in his book on education, um, he discusses the possibility that a genuinely loving relationship in which people care about one another for their own sake might be a way of um, achieving that kind of satisfaction. But basically he is a terrible pessimist. He thinks that even though um, there are theoretically ways out of the nightmare of modernity, most of the time it's hell. 
and probably we're going to fail. So theoretically, there's a route out of the maze, but actually, it's, um, we're almost certainly not going to take it. Thanks, Chris. I really enjoyed it. I had a couple of small questions. One was about the through institutions, you can overcome this condition yeah. that you were just talking about. But then the way Rousseau talks about the state as a corporate agent who actually loses even the kind of good motivation that individual might have seems to undermine the constructive project of the, of the social contract. Yeah. So I was wondering yeah. whether you had any thoughts on yeah. that. So, so on the first question, the, 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 the reception of the text and so on, so Rousseau handed the papers to a guy called Alexandre Dupéru, I think, um, and they were kept in private, essentially, for, um, say, at least 100 years after Rousseau's death. So people didn't know about them, they didn't circulate. So they first got circulated at the end of the 19th century, and the first kind of scholarly editions um, are about that time, but not very scholarly by today's standards. So people just didn't know about it. And then when it was found, it was even more incomplete than it was today, because there were you know, pages in this museum, pages in that museum. People didn't really put it together, and the pages were in the wrong order, so it didn't make any sense. Um, on the question of it being a bridge between the, the two texts, um, so I think in terms of the, the, the politics and the ideology of it, I think you're right that it's closer to the discourse on equality than it is to the social contract. But... In terms of some of the language and some of the ways in which he conceptualizes things, um, it's possibly closer to the social contract. So the, um, the, the philosophical anthropology, the theory of human nature, the, the concepts um, are suppressed, as it were. You have to kind of read them between the lines, as you do in the social contract. Um, and a similarly kind of Hobbesian but not Hobbesian conception of the state is at work in both works. But in the principles of the right of the war, that's given an overwhelmingly negative spin, whereas in the social contract you get something much more positive. General Will and how which you were talking about at the end of right. your lecture and some of the um, passages that you quoted um, in, in, in your, your lecture um, I mean um, as I understand it in the social contract uh, the general will relates to amongst other things legitimate positive law and mm-hmm. all sorts of things um, Whereas here we have um, this idea of an artificial concord which leads to um, you know, um, barbarity and you know, beautiful of each other's throats. So that, that seemed rather interesting. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I think that's, that's, that's right. And it, it's not entirely clear 
how Rousseau is thinking of the general will in this text. So in the social contract, um, you've, got, uh, you've, you've really got two things going on in the general will, I think. On the one hand, you've got a, um, an almost democratic conception of the general will. So you've got the idea that the people all assemble together in, in their assembly, and they give their approval or not to the, the various laws, and they, they're asked whether it's in accordance with their general will. On the other hand, sometimes, particularly in book four of the social contract, you've got this idea of the general will as some kind of transcendent fact about society that's always kind of there lurking quite independently of um, what anyone thinks about it. And both of those things seem to be going on. So I think that the, um, the, the, the general will that he talk, he's talking about in this text is in a sense more like the latter because it's not something that anyone has posited, necessarily positively deliberated about and agreed upon. Um, it's more like... Um, how shall I put it? Um, so it's more like the expression of whatever the, the, the tacit and explicit conventions that, that structure that society kind of legally, that's the, that's the general will in this story. Um, it doesn't have to relate to any kind of democratic deliberation of any citizens. So in this sense, uh, so you, you, no, one, no one, I think, ought to say that a large modern state has a general will in Rousseau's democratic state, democratic sense. But you might think of it as having a general will in the sense that's implied here. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if you could speak to um, Rousseau's conception of inter and intrastate violence, relationship between that and, and the size of the state. Um, you also had a very pessimistic view of that. Yes. This is the reality over the past 500 years, which is that both inter and intrastate violence have declined as a proportion of total population as states have got more powerful and bigger. Yeah, so, so there's some discussion of this in the, in the text. Um, so what he says, essentially, is that the states are these artificial constructs made out of human beings. And because of that, they, um, they, they're inherently weak because they depend upon getting these people to act together. Um, and the larger these states are, the... In a sense, the, um, the weaker they are inherently because the, the bond that links together people is much, more, is, 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 is much more attenuated in a large state than in a small state. In a small state where everyone cares about one another and everyone knows one another, um, then you don't need much force and violence to keep the, keep the state together, keep, keep everyone functioning it's like in a small academic department or whatever. But as soon as you have a, a large bureaucracy and you have people spread out over vast areas, then in order to get them to, to cooperate effectively, you need to employ much more force and violence to do so. And that force and violence can just as well be turned you know, outside as inside. So I think something like that is, is the kind of thought that he's having. But the, but the reality has been the reverse, right? So 
So as mm -hmm. states have got more powerful violence, it, it, both inter and intrastate violence has declined. Right. Okay. So that, I mean, that's an empirical claim about about. Uh, I mean, that's an empirical claim about the last two or three hundred years or whatever. Okay, I'm so citing Stephen. Pinker. Yeah, it's, it's the Stephen Pinker thesis. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read, I haven't yet read Pinker's book. Um, uh, I, I incline to a certain scepticism about it before, before I've read it. So, um, but I mean, you have to think about so. So take a large country like the United States, for example. Um, there might not be an awful lot of you know, actual fighting, actual violence going on, but that depends to some extent on how you categorise violence, what counts as violence. So if you take account of the enormous prison population, is that an instance of violence or is that an instance of the state's effective suppression of violence? It partly depends on the frame in which, you, in which you're looking at that. Do you want to comment on that point directly? Um, no. It was... No, I'm sorry. I, was, um, I, I thought there was some objection there, but the point is... Okay, yeah. go ahead. Um, it seems that um, he's talking uh, about an abstraction, these states, and because it loses the, uh, the um, same the individual humanity you have when you're dealing with one-on-one -on -one human beings. And it seems as though a natural way of avoiding that would be through a sovereign. If a sovereign meets another sovereign, you've got that face-to-face -face mm -hmm. interaction. You have um, also, if it's a sovereign, they have almost their entire lifetime when they're reigning, in which they can build relationships with other one-to-one -one human beings. And it seems that that would be an obvious way um, of addressing the issue that you've got on one hand, this abstraction of the state, but wanting to counteract that by the human face-to-face -face relation it does... Well, a sovereign doesn't have to be uh, a person. I mean, a sovereign is always an artificial person, but a sovereign doesn't have to be um, a, a king or a queen in this sense. A sovereign could be um, you know, the, the, the parliament of the republic or whatever. So it's only certain forms of state where that kind of face-to-face -face relationship um, is possible. Um, Rousseau's generally down, pretty down on um, monarchy as a, um, a system of rule. Um, you tend to get, um, you know, he thinks you tend to get idiots who get flattered by courtiers in a monarchy. So he doesn't think it's, he thinks that the downsides um, really um, eclipse any possible upsides there. But it's an interesting point. Um, I'm slightly new to this field, so to bear with me a little. I'm not clear what the implications are for civil law. The state is perhaps on one side. Mm. Um, the other protagonist is really not a state. So it looks like the state is not necessarily just Silicon known for being out of court. That's the case. Um, and the other sort of consideration I thought I had is what about wars of religion which may cut across states or maybe internal? Um, I don't know. Or um, let's say wars where the state is at stake, such as say wars of the Rose at stake. What does he have to say about these different kinds of uh, well, conflicts where we, where we 
I so I think that so 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 those are very good points. Um, he doesn't really, um, at least not in this text, deal effectively with those kind of objections. Um, and I think it's a, a, a reasonable objection to, um, to to point to the existence of um, of things like civil war and religious conflict. Because something like religious conflict does seem to you know, fit the bill for what he's talking about. When, when he talks about you know, a settled you know, enmity, um, fixed relations, um, uh, a more or less permanent um, desire to um, get at and destroy the other side, sometimes suspended because everyone's too exhausted. He does, that does seem to fit the case of, say, religious war, religious conflict, rather well. In some cases, I guess um, you could say something like, um, in some cases of civil war, you're going to want to say that we, shouldn't, we should go behind the legal appearance, as it were. So in Syria today, for example, um, you might say there's a state against a, a non-state actor or non-state actors, but you might just as well say, okay, what we've got here is actually two state-like um, organisations in conflict. Um, so there, there might be ways to handle that, but you're absolutely right that he doesn't handle that, that, that issue particularly clearly and explicitly. Any more questions? Yes, please. You didn't mention that the gets denuclearized each other. It may apply to the EU, but how do you explain that the 27 states of the EU going to war in Afghanistan? They may not go to war internally within the European mm-hmm. Union, but they are quite prepared to overstep the line and go all the way to start a war in Afghanistan and elsewhere. Yeah. Um, well, you're asking me how I explain that, or uh, you're asking me to speculate about how Rousseau would explain that? Uh, how does it to Rousseau's theory and, and your early explanation that in Europe, after World War II, so they come together to form the European Union, 27 yeah. states. But since the political culture in Europe is such that they must have war of some kind every four to five years, so the 27 it's clear nations that, yeah. that have to go to war in Afghanistan. It's clear that it's clear that I think that you know, that this this 18th century text isn't a particularly good guide to the politics of the European Union. But I think that um, so so I think you're certainly right about that. But I think Rousseau would would would. Would have might have this to say. Though. I mean, he would think it very, very bizarre to think of um, peoples as having genuine interests in waging war in you know, distant continents. Where would such an interest come from? But the kind of geopolitical interest he's talking about, the kind of concern with resources and relative advantage and that kind of thing, you could bring that into an explanation of why states get involved in uh, wars and interventions on different continents where it, it looks like you know, that there's no um, direct benefit to their own populations, but they're anticipating 
perhaps in a relative decline in power. They're trying to ensure that, um, that, 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 that they will still uh, enjoy their relative position in 25 years, 30 years' time. That kind of jockeying for relative position is, is just the sort of thing that he would think of as being characteristic of the state. Is it not that Rousseau is explaining the, the political culture of Europe? That every few years you could have a war of some kind, big or small. You know, whether you like it or not. Since, since 1066 to today for the last 800 years, Europe has been a war with each other. Well, so the European, yeah, Union, yeah. European Union somehow neutralizes but they still need a war some kind somewhere in the world. Well, I think it's a bit odd, actually, because, because the, 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 the states of his own day, most of them, um, were, um, were, were not states where um, you know, everybody, uh, were, everyone was a citizen in the modern sense. Um, were not so clearly composed of all their members in the kind of ideal, ideal Hobbesian way. You had much more of a kind of patchwork of sovereignty across Europe. It doesn't fit the picture, picture terribly well, but it actually fits the picture of the modern kind of post-French revolutionary state in some ways rather better, I'd have thought. But anyway. There's the state or the nation state. There is a difference, isn't there? Because uh, we, yeah. can't, we can't view this concept of the state in terms of the nation necessarily, surely. Because war predates the that, nation state. Yes, that, that's right. Um, so, but Rousseau, I mean, Rousseau, Rousseau's sometimes thought of as an early theorist of nationalism, but you didn't really have modern nationalism no, yet right. in, in his, in his yeah, time. Yeah. And a lot of this would apply to um, groupings where there is a sovereignty, but not necessarily a state with a geographical location, which would explain why um, it would be applicable to non-European um, geographical areas. I'm thinking, for example, in Asia. Yeah, perhaps. Where there was still war, there was still the idea of sovereignty, but not necessarily the idea of state. Yeah. And there wasn't that internal war of the state against its own people. Well, I don't know enough about um, Asian um, history, I'm afraid, to really engage with that. Oh, I'm just thinking, yeah. for example, yeah. of the European, particularly the British mm. use of starvation, mm-hmm. internally, externally, <coughs> within groupings. Um, just thinking of China as an example, mm-hmm. where they very much opposed to that. They ensured that during periods of famine, yeah. there was no starvation. And it struck me that in that, um, in, in the various dynasties, they used um, administration as um, uh, another cohesion of the state rather than the Western over-emphasis mm. on the violence. Mm. Do you think that would be true? Do you, I mean, do you, to what extent do you think uh, Rousseau is speaking as a European of the European more so than as a world model? Well, I think there are two, I mean, there are two sources for... for two kind of historical and empirical sources for Rousseau's thinking. Um, so maybe I could supplement that a little bit. But one is um, you know, the, the immediate world around him in kind of modern Europe. And the other is ancient history, essentially. So he spends loads of time, from the time he's a teenager, reading kind of Plutarch and Herodotus and so on. Okay. 
Um, so it's not particularly based on you know, any um, kind of reliable uh, history of other parts of the world. Yeah, because of ancient, ancient European history again. Yeah, well, European and Near Eastern, I guess. There's a question in the front. Um, I only have one question. How does Lord Ashton's basic six conditions of going to war relate to Russo's? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to tell me what they are? Um, No. Okay, well, let's take it. What was Russo's definition of the natural state of man. Okay, so he thinks that um, we are, by nature, solitary creatures. Um, In the Discourse on Inequality, which is one of the most kind of wonderful um, pieces of of writing ever, so I advise advise everyone else, everyone to to read, to to look at that. Um, he, He engages in this speculative history um, of humanity, and he opposes the natural law theorists who think we're naturally sociable. In fact, they probably got it more right than, than he did, and thinks that the original condition of human beings is as more or less isolated creatures um, who are you know, wandering through um, the, the, the primeval forests. They occasionally meet up, um, copulate, and you know, part again. Um, but that's, that's it. They, they have the means to um, satisfy their um, material desires. They can you know, pop fruit off trees or whatever. Um, there's a really, really interesting um, uh, footnote to the discourse where he talks about the boundaries of the human species. And he says, okay, there are these creatures called orangutans. Are they human beings? Uh, he says, well, we can't really tell. It would be immoral to, to, to conduct the, the necessary experiment to find out. Um, but actually, his description of early humans um, matches quite well the behavioural patterns of orangutans in Borneo. Even though, and this is the, the, the kind of twist, even though he kind of got orangutan behaviour right and thought they might be human, uh, it turns out the creature who he was writing about was... Um, the, the, the gorilla and not the oh. orangutan. So he got that mixed up. But um, uh, but but he thought he thought we were quite really quite close um, to these to, 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 to these great apes. And this is well, way before uh, Darwin's theory of evolution by, by natural selection. I think we have time just for one last brief question. So. Uh, you mentioned that uh, early in the he was initiated into uh, Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Would you have been uh, familiar with the Catholic ideas on the Joshua theory? Oh, certainly he would, yes. And yes. What, what would you have made of Well, I think that, that that's essentially what he's referring to right at the beginning of the text. So he thinks that um, they, they are, he thinks that they're just a kind of rationalisation for the use of force and violence um, uh, rather than um, ra- rather than representing any kind of genuine morality. That's why he's got that you know, rhetorical introduction where he contrasts what he reads in the, the works of natural law theorists with what he sees both domestically in states and on the battlefield. So he thinks it's more he thinks it's basically ideological guff. Okay.
Thank you very much for this. Uh...